section thirty two of heroines of fiction by william dean howells this librivox recording is in the public domain mr thomas hardy's heroines if i restrict myself somewhat in the space given to mr hardy's heroines and seem scantly to treat of them in a paper or two it is not because i value them less than the heroines of some novelists with whom i have allowed myself a wider range but i am sensible that with all their witchery they are of a sisterhood or at the most a cousinhood which may be more typically represented and that with their strong individual characters there is a strong family likeness among them all which may be suggested in the figures and actions of a few one i recall distinctly the order of my acquaintance with these lovely if somewhat elusive somewhat elusive ladies it began with elfrida swancourt in a pair of blue eyes who revealed to me a fresh conception of the ever womanly and in whose fate passion and caprice comedy and tragedy were so strangely mingled that one remembers her with a sigh that is half a smile and an adoration that rather slights its idol she remained somehow exterior both to what she suffered and to what she did it happened to her or from her but she did not seem responsible for it fancy there in under the greenwood tree was morally more trammelled both in the cause and consequence yet she too was warped along by the toils of fate rather than moved by her own will and in fact most of the women of mr hardy could urge that they had to do the things they did even when they wished to do them this was not quite so much the case with bathsheba everdeen in far from the madding crowd as with some others she for a hardy heroine had a degree of control over her destiny which might almost be called free will at least she was not so much the prey of determinism as most of the others it is true that she yields to a sort of fascination in sergeant troy but only as all women in love do she no more keeps her head than she keeps her heart in the mistaken marriage she makes she has a powerful will which does not avail her so much in the great as in the little things and she has a sturdy common sense of pretty much the same effect yet she is upon the whole the least wrought upon by her environment and the most absolute of her sisterhood the larger part of these are self-willed rather than strong-willed as is eminently the case with paula power in the laodicean that is not nearly so great a novel as far from the madding crowd but it is of a peculiar charm because it is the full expression of the sort of feminine personality which will bewitch men as long as the shifty graces of a weather-vane more take their fancy in women than the steadfast virtues of the sky-pointing steeple each worshipper hopes that somehow 
the vein when it turns in his favour will stand still there and in fact this is what commonly happens first or last paula power veered with most winds that blew but while her purposes shifted her fancy was fixed in the young architect who had caught it and who kept it in spite of all her turning she was more nearly a society person than mr hardy commonly paints and had less of primitive earthiness than almost any of his heroines in that terrible group of noble dames with whom he makes us acquainted in a series of wonderful histories the tellular quality of their natures is so much more appreciable than even the mundane that they seem beings emancipated by their potent caprices and propensities from all the social obligations and are not so much grand dame as predatory creatures set by their caste above the moral law mr hardy's heroines are good or they are bad or they are now good and now bad according to some inner impulse from some agency deeper or more primal than conscience when they feel the pull of the moral law they yield it a partial and provisional allegiance as fancy dare does in under the greenwood tree when she finds herself so differently in love with the vicar and with dick the tranter that she is unable to reconcile the conflicting passions and acquires what merit she can by frankly owning the fact to the vicar and renouncing him or as the pretty widow in the distracted young preacher who acknowledges the error of smuggling but sees some excuse for herself and her neighbours in the fact they only do it in the winter perhaps we may best define the sort of woman this novelist places before us so livingly that we cannot doubt their reality by a process of exclusion in which we need not go farther than to say that they are wholly unlike american women they are of the same stock racially but ours are of a graft upon the parent stem so different that the two varieties of fruit are as little related as plums and apricots in the hardy lower-class heroines we see the primitive englishwoman before she was touched by puritanism and in his middle and upper-class heroines the same woman as she has grown into modern civilization unaffected by the tremendous force which has permeated and moulded the nature of the american great grand nieces of that original englishwoman i have often wondered what character untouched by puritanism was like and i fancy that in the hardy heroines i have seen and if i cannot altogether approve of it i can own its charm as i can willingly acknowledge the ugliness and error and soul-sickness which puritanism produced in building up our intensely personalized american conscience if we take the case even of such a character as sue broadhead in jude with her hysterically exaggerated impulses toward what her conscience bids her do we have the nervous impressibility of the puritanized woman but we are made finally aware that it is the like effect of wholly different causes 
it is the ecclesiasticized conscience which works in this english girl not the personalized conscience which would drive a like american girl to the same frenetic extremes oddly enough as the reader will perhaps think i am inclined to regard ethelberta in the hand of ethelberta as one of the highest-minded of mr hardy's women at least she is one of those least swayed by passion and of a mind the least darkened by exhalations from those dregs of pagan earthiness which lie at the base of his woman's natures she is quite unselfish and her ambition is for her family and the advancement of its modest fortunes when the employment of her unique gift as a public story-teller makes it advisable for her to establish herself in london and she takes a house there with her brother for a page one sister for cook and the other for housemaid and her mother for a sort of upper servant they all understand that it is for their good and not for her glory and they acquiesce with the affection for her which she feels for them and which she never fails to show on proper occasion dinner in a nobleman's house where her father the butler waits behind her chair while she figures as the celebrity of the hour is not a proper occasion and she reserves the display of her filial love for the meetings with her father behind her own doors even in the case of her young lover whom she gives up for the bad-natured but good-humoured old lord whom she marries she has never been so much in love with him but she was willing to get him for her sister Piketty and when she finds out how very wicked her amiable old lord is she does her best to escape from him being prevented she remains and reforms him the scheme is the most fantastic of mr hardy's plots but it must be owned it is delightful and ethelberta is one of the most delightful as well as one of the most respectable of his heroines she is not quite candid but as i said she is very unselfish and i do not know that she has her moral superior in his fiction except anne garland in the trumpet major or a pensive figure like grace melbury in the woodlanders anne is the sweetest and freshest of his girls and is of that level of life on which his muse seems to find herself most at home she is above the lowest but not so high as to tempt the author aside from her character to the complications of her social environment which is indeed very simple she is quite though rather passively constant to a lover who is rather actively inconstant but finally true to the young fancy they have had for each other and she is i hazard the notion innately perhaps the most ladylike of mr hardy's creations one heart-breaking presence among these i could not ignore without accusing myself of insensibility and yet i cannot name tess and tess of the d'urbervilles without a feeling of imperfection in the handling of her character which i might not be able to make apparent i do not know that i wish to make it apparent and i will only say that profoundly pathetic as she is tess seems to me wanting in unity she seems the effect of two successive impulses of the author's imagination in the first part of the story she is one tess 
whom the other tests in the last part does not so much grow out of as seem joined to they are halves of two figurines found in the same soil and compact of the same clay not belonging originally together but joined by voluntary and conscious skill i have owned that it would be difficult to prove this and i shall not be hurt if the reader does not agree with me or throws things at me in defence of one of the most pathetic heroines of fiction yet i am inclined to hold to my opinion and i will ask any irate differer to compare her evolution with that of eustatia vi for instance in the return of the native poor eustatia with her sordid ambition and her selfish dreams of happiness her selfish ideals of love and her essential cold-heartedness in spite of her warm-bloodedness is one to command the least respect among a generation of ladies who all command one's amused liking rather than one's respect unless indeed it be that heroine of the mayor of casterbridge whom i shadowily remember as possibly shadier still but whom i cannot recall by name two eustatia vi is one of those natures whose social evolution interests you so little that you do not care how vaguely it is suggested we first find her in her grandfather's house on egdon heath of which she is very fit to be the tutelary spirit though she alone among the characters is not native to it and has an ideal of life wholly alien to the wild and simple and solemn place she longs for excitement and for worldly triumphs and artificial splendours and at egdon she has only a lover whom she cannot marry and another whom having married she wearies of though he is good and fine and above her in everything but ambition it is seldom that an author presents a heroine so palpably as eustatia is shown in these richly descriptive passages eustatia vi was the raw material of a divinity on olympus she would have done well with a little preparation she had the passions and instincts which make a model goddess that is those which make not quite a model woman she was in person full-limbed and somewhat heavy without ruddiness as without pallor and soft to the touch as a cloud to see her hair was to fancy that a whole winter did not contain darkness enough to form its shadow it closed over her forehead like nightfall extinguishing the western glow her nerves extended into those tresses and her temper could always be softened by stroking them down when her hair was brushed she would instantly sink into stillness and look like the sphinx she had pagan eyes full of nocturnal mysteries their light as it came and went and came again was partially hampered by their oppressive lids and lashes and of these the underlid was much fuller than it usually is with english women this enabled her to indulge in reverie without seeming to do so she might have been believed capable of sleeping without closing them up the mouth seemed formed less to speak than to quiver less to quiver than to kiss some might have added less to kiss than to curl one had fancied that such lip curves were mostly lurking underground in the south as fragments of forgotten marbles so fine were the lines of her lips that though full each corner of her mouth was as clearly cut as the point of a spear this keenness of corner was only blunted when she was given over to sudden fits of gloom one of the phases of the night side of sentiment which she knew too well for her years in this portrait the whole 
passionately selfish drama of the woman is suggested wild eve a strange lawless earth spirit of like generation trifles with her love and her fancy wanders from him to clinyobright who returns from paris and settles down on the heath after his eyesight is threatened as a furze cutter she does not mean to let him stay there but to make him take her to paris or out into the world somewhere and from time to time she sees wild eve after her marriage to clinyobright and at last elopes with him and they are drowned together in the weir mr hardy loves to keep close to nature in all his novels but in none do we feel the breath of the earth as in this the story keeps to the circuit of the lonely heath with its few farms and hamlets and much of it befalls by night as suits the dusky soul of the heroine a very significant bit as regards her and very characteristic as regards the courageous humour of the author is that passage in which she keeps her bargain with the simple-hearted country boy who lends her his costume for a masquerading adventure on condition that she will let him hold her hand for a quarter of an hour the next evening eustatia stood punctually at the fuel-house door waiting for the dusk which was to bring charlie with the trappings he appeared on the dark ridge of heathland here are the things he whispered placing them upon the threshold and now miss eustatia the payment it is quite ready i am as good as my word she leaned against the door-post and gave him her hand charlie took it in both his own with a tenderness beyond description unless it was like that of a child holding a captured sparrow why there's a glove on it he said in a deprecating way i've been walking she observed but miss well it is hardly fair she pulled off the glove and gave him her bare hand they stood together without further speech each looking at the blackening scene and each thinking his and her own thoughts i think i won't use it all up to-night said charlie when six or eight minutes had been passed by them hand in hand may i have the other few minutes another time as you like said she without the least emotion but it must be over in a week now there is only one thing i want you to do to wait while i put on the dress and then to see if i do my part properly but let me look first indoors she vanished for a minute or two and went in her grandfather was safely asleep in his chair now then she said on returning walk down the garden a little way and when i am ready i'll call you charlie walked and waited and presently heard a soft whistle he returned to the fuel-house door she struck the light revealing herself to be changed in sex brilliant in colours and armed from top to toe perhaps she quailed a little under charlie's vigorous gaze but 
whether any shyness appeared upon her countenance could not be seen by reason of the strips of ribbon which used to cover the face in mumming costumes representing the barred visor of the mediaeval helmet it fits pretty well she said looking down at the white overalls except that the tunic or whatever you call it is long in the sleeve the bottom of the overalls i can turn up inside now you may leave me yes miss but i think i'll have one minute more of what i am owed if you don't mind eustatia gave him her hand as before one minute she said and at about the proper interval counted on till she reached seven or eight hand and person she then withdrew to a distance of several feet and recovered some of her old dignity the contract completed she raised between them a barrier impenetrable as a wall there tis all gone and i didn't mean quite all he said with a sigh a whimsical comedy in the neighbouring heath dwellers plays round the central tragedy and gilds with its phosphorescent gaiety the gloom of the whelming doom when it has come to eustatia's feigning absence from home and letting her husband's mother toil back to her own house through the midday heat that kills her the end is already in view for she has not opened her door because while diva's within in the scene with her husband which follows eustatia's peculiar nature is allowed to make itself felt in terms curiously wanting in dramatic intensity but somehow adequate to the situation he comes home early in the morning and goes straight to her room the noise of his arrival must have aroused her for when he opened the door she was standing before the looking-glass in her night-dress the ends of her hair gathered into one hand with which she was coiling the whole mass round her head previous to beginning toilette operations she was not a woman given to speaking first at a meeting and she allowed clem to walk across in silence without turning her head he came behind her and she saw his face in the glass it was ashy haggard and terrible instead of starting towards him in sorrowful surprise as even eustatia undemonstrative wife as she was would have done in days before she burdened herself with a secret she remained motionless looking at him in the glass and while she looked the carmine flush with which warmth and sound sleep had suffused her cheeks and neck dissolved from view and the death-like pallor in his face flew across into hers he was close enough to see this and the sight instigated his tongue you know what is the matter he said huskily i see it in your face her hand relinquished the rope of hair and dropped to her side and the pile of tresses no longer supported fell from the crown of her head about her shoulders and over the white nightgown in inky streams she made no reply speak to me 
said yeobright peremptorily the blanching process did not cease in her and her lips now became as white as her face one familiar with the stoic philosophy would have fancied that he saw the delicate tissue of her soul extricating itself from her body and leaving it a simple heap of old clay she turned to him and said yes quim i'll speak to you why do you return so early can i do anything for you yes you can listen to me it seems that my wife is not very well why your face my dear your face or perhaps it is the pale morning light which takes your colour away now i am going to reveal a secret to you ha ha oh that is ghastly what your laugh there's reason for ghastliness eustatia you have held my happiness in the hollow of your hand and like a devil you have dashed it down she started back from her dressing-table retreated a few steps from him and looked him in the face ah you think to frighten me she said with a slight laugh is it worth while i'm undefended and alone how extraordinary what do you mean as there is ample time i will tell you though you know well enough i mean that it is extraordinary that you should be alone in my absence tell me now where is he who was with you on the afternoon of the thirty first of august under the bed up the chimney a shudder overcame her and shook the light fabric of her nightdress throughout i do not remember date so exactly she said i cannot recollect that anybody was with me besides yourself their quarrel ends in her leaving the house and at last the reader's heart almost turns to her in her self-pity cruel and false as she has been oh 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 she cried breaking down at last and shaking with sobs which choked her she sank upon her knees oh will you have done oh you are too relentless there's a limit to the cruelty of savages i've held out long but you crush me down i beg for mercy i cannot bear this any longer it is inhuman to go farther with this if i had killed your mother with my own hand i should not deserve such a scourging to the bone as this oh oh god have mercy upon a miserable woman you have beaten me in this game i beg you to stay your hand in pity i am going from this house we cannot both stay here she hastily dressed herself your bright moodily walking up and down the room the whole of the time at last all her things were on her poor little hands quivered so violently as she held them to her chin to fasten her bonnet that she could not tie the strings and after a few moments she relinquished the attempt seeing this he moved forward and said let me tie them she assented in silence and lifted her chin for once at least in her life she was totally oblivious of the charm of her attitude but he was not and he turned his eyes aside 
that he might not be tempted to softness three elfrida swancourt as compared with such an earth spirit as eustatia vi is an air spirit but she is quite as strictly of this world one has a greater tenderness for her and realizes that in her love affairs so swiftly successive as to be almost simultaneous she is quite unselfish or at least she seeks her happiness only in that of the man she loves she suffers cruel rejection and punishment through henry knight on whom her heart is truly set because he thinks her a flirt and is retroactively jealous of the young architect stephen smith and cannot understand how she might have had a fancy for another before she was fixed in her passion for himself but she recovers from the blow sufficiently to marry lord luxellian and the final pathos of her story is not for her heartbreak but for her early death the pang of this is such that it is difficult to get back of the fact to that earlier consciousness of her in which one could laugh when an older woman said of her that elfrida would talk like a philosopher but would behave like a robin in a greenhouse this indeed was true of her mainly in minor matters of conduct she was equal to the more heroic demands of life there is a lovely honesty in her which mainly characterizes her in spite of much folly and heedless risk and downright defection that is she gives her fancy to stephen smith and then she gives her heart to henry knight without losing the reader's respect for people change and one preference pushes out another without sin though not without suffering it is the hard lot of women that though they cannot always inspire men with constancy they so embody men's highest ideal of it that they cannot change without violence to that ideal they are therefore obliged to use finesse when perhaps they would rather not and try to seem unchanging even while they change it was elfrida's difficult problem to make knight feel that she had never loved any one but him while confronted in her own consciousness by the fact that in a different if somewhat more ignorant way she had at least very much liked being loved by stephen smith if she had not loved him she was really engaged to smith when she met knight and she had somehow to get rid of the old love before reconciling herself to happiness in the new the affair was possible in its subjective implications but objectively it countered with the devoted and exacting passion of knight and ended badly nothing more prettily suggests this charming girl's complexity of emotion and simplicity of action than a scene which will have remained in every reader's memory one of mr hardy's peculiarly audacious and intimate scenes with night she has got over the face of a lofty seaward cliff and when he finds it impossible to return to her 
he helps her to get back and remains clinging to a face of rock where his hold must give way in a few minutes there is no time to run for help and there is none at hand except in her own wit on a sudden we are told she vanished over the bank from his sight she was gone for what seemed to him an eternity but when she reappeared he noticed as he looked up at her that in her arms she bore a bundle of white linen and that her form was singularly attenuated so preternaturally thin and flexible was elfrida at this moment that she appeared to bend under the light blows of the rain shafts as they struck into her sides and bosom and splintered into spray on her face she sat down and hurriedly began rending the linen into strips those she knotted end to end and afterwards twisted them like the strands of a cord in a short space of time she had formed a perfect rope by this means six or seven yards long can you wait while i bind it she said anxiously extending her gaze down to him yes if not very long hope has given me a wonderful instalment of strength elfrida wound the lengthy string she had thus formed round and round the linen rope which was now firm in every part when you have let it down said knight already resuming his position of ruling power go back from the edge of the slope and over the bank as far as the rope will allow you then lean down and hold the end with both hands i have tied it round my waist she cried and i will lean directly upon the bank holding with my hands as well it was the arrangement he had thought of but would not suggest i will raise and drop it three times when i am behind the bank she continued to signify that i am ready take care oh take the greatest care i beg of you she dropped the rope over him to learn how much of its length it would be necessary to expend on that side of the bank went back and disappeared as she had done before the rope was trailing by knight's shoulders in a few moments it moved three times he waited yet a second or two then laid hold half a dozen extensions of the arms alternating with half a dozen seizures of the rope with his feet brought him up to the level of the soil he was saved and sprang over the bank at sight of him she leaped to her feet with almost a shriek of joy knight's eyes met hers and with supreme eloquence the glance of each told a long concealed tale of emotion in that short half moment moved by an impulse neither could resist they ran together and into each other's arms an overwhelming rush of exultation at having delivered the man she revered from one of the most terrible forms of death shook the gentle girl to the centre of her soul it merged in a defiance of duty to stephen and a total recklessness as to plighted faith every nerve of her will was now in entire subjection to her feeling volition as a guiding power 
had forsaken her to remain passive as she remained now encircled by his arms was a sufficiently complete result a glorious crown to all the years of her life elfrida recovered herself and gently struggled to be free he reluctantly relinquished her and then surveyed her from crown to toe she seemed as small as an infant he perceived whence she had obtained the rope elfrida my elfrida he exclaimed in gratified amazement i must leave you now she said her face doubling its red with an expression between gladness and shame you follow me but at some distance behind the bank while night reclined upon the dizzy slope waiting for death she had taken off her whole clothing and replaced only her outer robe and skirt every thread of the remainder lay upon the ground in the form of a woollen and cotton rope she then ran off from him through the pelting rain like a hare or more like a pheasant when scampering away with a lowered tail it has a mind to fly but does not End of section thirty two